I am not expecting you to believe in God just because your parents did. You must encounter God yourself. You must know the Lord yourself. You yourself must find out what He has done. Faith is not like a virus that can be caught just by hanging out with other Christians. You can get the flu that way, but you cannot get Christianity. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Brody. Judges chapter 2 in the focus today. The series is called Get Over Yourself. Today's study, Keep the Covenant. Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Bosteep. Well, Josh, the phrase, faith of our fathers, is that a dangerous notion? I think it probably is, isn't it? I mean, I suppose when people use it, they are intending to be encouraging that uh, there is a legacy, there's a lineage, we're a part of something substantial, and all that is good and fine. But there, I think you're right, there is a danger. We, we cannot have the faith of our fathers. We have to have faith that God has given us, and it has to be um, appropriated by each generation. And uh, that, yeah, I think you're right to have that correction. Let's take a look further into that topic. Judges chapter 2, keep the covenant. Here's Josh. Well, friends, uh, brothers and sisters, if you turn with me to your Bibles, we're looking at uh, the book of Judges, and we're going to pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 3. So chapter 3 and verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning traces for us a pattern which is very familiar to all of us. Someone can uh, grow up as a Christian in a Christian home, and yet when it comes their turn to be an adult and to follow Jesus, it comes their turn to spread their wings, they end up not keeping to the faith of their fathers, of their forefathers. It's a very familiar pattern. It happens sometimes in our own experience of people we've seen. And so we have here described over and over again this common change from what the fathers believed and did to what the children believed and did. You can see it over and over again. But it's not just uh, individuals here, but a whole shift of society as well. And that can happen sometimes too. In the Western world, ever since the secular enlightenment of the 18th century, people like Voltaire and Rousseau and all that kind of thing, it has become very difficult for educated people to stand up in public and say, yes, they believe in the God of the Bible. You could perhaps say that uh, it's okay to believe in some kind of private, personal experience, but actually at work or in an academic environment or among some kind of educated people, it has become very hard to really say that you believe that Jesus really did live 
and die and rise again, for that is a miracle, and miracles are deemed to be irrational. Uh, And again, it may be your own personal faith, but to say that it is a logical conclusion has become something very difficult to be accepted by many people today ever since that shift in our society to really say that the Bible, especially an ancient book like this one, the book of Judges, is, is the word of God. Well, people sneer at that, don't they? They don't even take it seriously enough to talk about it. It's a joke. And so there has been that kind of shift in our Western heritage. A whole new generation has grown up that neither knew the Lord nor what he had done, as Judges puts it. Maybe uh, they couldn't see what was so different between Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh and, and Baal. And they wondered to themselves, why can't they just have both? Maybe they uh, quite liked the idea of accepting those invitations to the Baal and Ashtoreth sex-crazed pagan parties. And now Dad had gone, who was going to know? Maybe the idea that God had parted the Red Sea and miraculously rescued the Israelites from Egypt seemed, frankly, baloney. And wasn't it, after all, just a fairy tale passed down to keep little boys and little girls, good little boys and good little girls? And once you've grown up, well, then we all know better, don't we? And so what we're going to look at in this passage is uh, to see what it is is the real problem behind this shift from one generation to the other, and then what it teaches us Uh, is the true solution, what the real problem is. Once you can see that, you're going to be helped to see what the true solution is. Those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. Okay, so let's let's get on with it. First, the problem, formal, not personal faith. The problem, formal, not personal faith. They were told, forsook the Lord and follow the gods, the peoples around them. Now, what was actually going on? Probably they carried on also worshipping Yahweh. We can know that as a pattern that happened uh, in the rest of the prophets when they're talking about it. Uh, they carried on also worshipping Yahweh, but they came polytheistic, as we would say. They were also worshipping the other gods. They, they wanted a kind of safety net, a security blanket in some kind of divine way. Yahweh, but also Baal to cover their bases, right? Now, who was Baal? Baal was the male ancient Canaanite god, and Baal was a fertility god of crops and children. Who was Ashtoreth? Ashtoreth was the female equivalent in the, the pantheon of the Canaanite theology. Baal, the word Baal, means master, but it also means husband. And so uh, that's partly why in verse 17, the Israelites... Worship of the Baals is called uh, running after harlotry, as, as the version we had read out put it, or, or going into prostitution. See, They were meant to be married to God. It was a deep, intimate relationship, a romance, you could say. And they were deserting him. And so God, you see, is described as, you know, really pretty upset. Uh, Understandably so. He's described in the terms of a husband finding his wife in bed with another man. That's how God feels about us. That deeply, that intimately. Their worship in ancient times also involved various 
ridiculous and gross behavior. Even there is good evidence to suggest child sacrifice to appease the gods. Now, that is what they were doing. But, of course, the question is, you know, what's really going? What's the real problem, this formal, not personal faith? What's really going? Why are they doing this? What would cause them to abandon God who had been so good to them, such a faithful God? Why would they do it? Well, look at verse 10, and that, in the end, describes the root problem. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up. You see the shift, again, that's repeated throughout the passage who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. See? So the real problem then was that the new generation neither knew God nor knew what he had done. It had become formal for them, not personal. Um, What he had done, literally the deed he had done or the work he had done, it seems to refer not only to the various kind of miracles that God had done of, of many different kinds throughout their history, but specifically and most of all to that rescue from Egypt, that deed he had done. It wasn't, didn't mean anything to them. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, verse 12 tells us, who had brought them out of Egypt. That had been consigned to formality, not reality in a personal way. Now, how can we illustrate this, uh, this pattern? I think, actually, the best uh, illustration for it comes from the Bible, you know, uh, and, 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 and that is uh, the manna in the desert. You know that story, right, of the manna in the desert? And so the, the people of God were hungry, and they, they were sent manna, a sort of bread from heaven. Manna means what is it, because they couldn't figure out what was going on. What is this stuff? What is it? Manna, they called it, right? What is it? And so they were sent this bread from heaven, this manna, and they were told not to store it up. Do you remember? Not to keep it, like, you know, try and refrigerate it and use it for the next day. They were told, don't store it up. Use, just, just have enough for each day, and there'll be more tomorrow. But, of course, they did try and store it up, and uh, then maggots got in it, and it rotted and all that kind of thing. It went, went, went bad. It went off. Well, similarly, you see, faith is not something that can be inherited. It cannot be stored up for the next day any more than the next generation. Each day, each person, each generation has to find God themselves to know the Lord and what he has done. Josh will continue our look at generational faith in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder that you're listening to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody, each senior pastor of College Church located in Wheaton, Illinois. This particular message coming from his previous church located on the East Coast back in 2007. Nonetheless, he is committed to your devotional growth and will tell you more about resources that he's made available in just a few minutes. Meantime, back to the study. Here's Josh. Let me uh, put it another way for us. What is the one thing I ask myself as a, as, a, as a father, myself, as a parent? What is the one thing that does not uh, and, and that I cannot pass naturally onto my children? What's the one thing that does not pass naturally from parents to children? All sorts of characteristics can pass from parents to children, can't they? The way they walk, some of their mannerisms, you know, the way they look. Characteristics of many and various kinds can pass on from children to their parents naturally. But the one thing that cannot pass on naturally, and that I cannot pass on naturally to my children, is my character. 
cannot pass that on genetically. Genes are passed naturally from one generation to another, but moral strength, well, that's got to be exercised by the individual in order to be retained. And it seems like it's a daily exercise throughout our lives, isn't it? Every day, even today, like the manna. You've probably heard the old saying that God has no grandchildren. You heard that one? Well, it's true, isn't it? We all have to be children of God. We cannot be his grandchildren. It has to be real to us. We have to know the Lord and what he has done for us. So what does this mean? Well, let me put it like this. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, if you're not a Christian, what this means is that I am not expecting you to believe in God just because your parents did. I am not expecting you to believe in God because America has a strong Christian heritage. You must encounter God yourself. You must know the Lord yourself. You yourself must find out what he has done. Faith is not like a virus that can be caught just by hanging out with other Christians. You can get the flu that way, but you cannot get Christianity. Right? You can learn to copy the behavior of Christians that way. You can become indistinguishable in terms of what you do and even how you sound. You can pick up the right phrases in terms of how you say certain things, you know. You can do all that kind of thing. But you see, faith is not a virus. It is a relationship. You have to get to that quiet place with God in your own soul where you encounter him and you know him yourself. Why is that, you say? Well, it is because God is a lover, not merely an idea. He is a husband, not merely a, a force. And he is someone who wants a passionate relationship and not some kind of traditional scent. Oh, yeah, I believe it because everyone does. No, you have to believe it yourself. It's going to be real. A child, you know, can go along with their parents' faith, and a child can certainly become a real Christian themselves. But it's not until they are older, when they have established their own identity separate from that of their parents, that they can really ask the question, do I believe this? And it's not until then that they can answer yes for themselves and not just for their family. They're just not in a place developmentally to be able to do it. They're still under the roof of their parents. They're still in, the, in, in their own identity. They're, they're, they're part of their parents' world. And so if you are a parent here this morning, I want you to see how this passage encourages us to be very fervent in our training of our children. I think parents have to look at this passage and they have to say to themselves, well, how come the next generation didn't know the Lord or what the Lord had done? And they have to ask themselves, had there been a lack of instruction on the part of the parents? And of course, children have to ask themselves, had there been a lack of interest on the part of the children? And most probably a bit of both. But if you're a parent, I also want you to see that ultimately, the choice your child makes will, when they grow up, be their own choice. And in fact, it must be. 
God does not castigate the parents for not bringing up their children right here. He criticizes the children, the next generation, when they are grown up, for not making the right decision themselves. And so if your child, God forbid, but if your child, despite all your best intentions, at the age of 25 or whatever, turns away from God, the reasons for that are between him or her and God. And I find there are many parents who feel guilty about it when they've really done the best possible job they possibly could have done. But still, God does not talk to them as individuals here, does he? He talks to them as a generation, as a generational characteristic. And uh, I think then we could say that uh, marketers are not the first people to have invented the idea of a, of a generation with certain characteristics and their behavior and their belief system. This was a generation that grew up that was different, and God could see it. They were not like their forefathers. Uh, this was uh, not generation, uh, I thought to myself, this isn't generation X or Y here, this is generation flaky. They went to the bales because the people around them were going to the bales, right? When God rescued them by sending judges, they followed the judge. But when he died, they followed the bales again, you know, flaky. They were like a weather vane on top of a roof that recorded accurately the way the wind was blowing. You could always tell which way the wind was blowing by this generation because that's where they were going. A weather vane. They, they, they were a thermometer that recorded the cultural temperature uh, when they should have been a thermostat that regulated the cultural environment according to, to God's principles in the Bible. Weather vane. Thermometer, not a thermostat. Well, whatever our generation today, we are called to live by the standards uh, that Christ has for us as revealed in scripture and not by the standards of our own secular generation. So let me try a few of those suggestions. If you're a baby boomer, you are called to invest in heaven and to give your remaining lives for God and not to the golf course or your 401k. Generation X, and I can say this because I think probably I'm a part of Generation X, Generation X, well, you frankly, guys, just need to pull your finger out and get on with something. I mean, really? And I'm speaking to myself, you know. You need to see the urgency of the gospel and be orientated by that purpose and not forever kind of like, oh, a bit of this, a bit of that, and you're 35, and then you're 45, and before you're long, you're dead, and you haven't done anything, right? Do something for God, for goodness sake, you know? You're not going to be here forever, really, honest, you know? What about Generation Y? And I have to be a bit nicer to them because I'm not one of them, you see. Generation Y, or whatever it is now, you know, the next one down, people have different terms for it. Well, Generation Y need to see their career and their education not as self-orientated achievements, but become God-centered and be willing to give up that next promotion or that grade in order to gain far more. And as I was thinking to myself about Generation Y, I wonder whether their motto should be, as they seek to follow God, that which came from Jim Elliot. You know these famous words? He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Generation Y, let that be your motto. Give it up. You're going to get far more. But of course the problem is really at root something that goes across the generations. And that problem is the basic wickedness of the human heart. And naturally we are all inclined to do what is wrong. These people had more spiritual privileges than any generation could imagine. And they were at the heart of a revival, still recorded thousands of years later. 
and yet they had turned their back on God. And so we need to take our manna each day, to not rely on past experiences of God. If we think we're doing well, what does the Bible say? Be careful if we think we stand, lest we fall. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, I'm glad that preacher, that pastor is, is doing such a good job of all those flaky people. I'm such a good, solid Christian. Be careful. Receive your manner today. Right? Don't be arrogant. Be humble before God. Seek in your daily living to know God personally and to know what he has done for us ultimately in Jesus at the cross who is our rescue from our spiritual Egypt. So that's the problem. And once we begin to analyze the problem, we can see how it moves swiftly towards the solution. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. We'll continue this message when we get together next time. But Josh, you mentioned parents and the challenge of seeing kids turning away from God. What's your pastoral advice to parents that are in the midst of that heartache right now? Mm. Patience, Hmm. prayer. Don't beat yourself up. Um, I'm sure you made mistakes. Everyone does. But some parents made more mistakes than you, and their children seem to be following Jesus. So it's don't beat yourself up. Uh, It won't help with your communication with your children because they'll sense that you feel guilty, and that will make it even harder. And the core of this study is uh, focusing on the fact that everyone has to make their own decision. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's not... Yeah, in the end, you can provide all the right context and all the right spiritual feeding, but they have to choose themselves. So speak to that listener that has taken on the family faith all their life, but might be sensing the need to own it for themselves. Mm. Welcome. Hmm. Time to take that step. If you're uh, sensing that, and perhaps even if you're not, but you're listening, it's still time to take that step. God waits with his arms open wide for you, and he's calling you. Don't say no to him, for he is a God who welcomes you. But of course, he is a God who judges too. And so don't treat him like a a sugar daddy who's always going to be there, whatever you do. And you can wait until the last day you draw your breath, and you don't need to make a decision today. No, now's the time. Now's the day of salvation. Come to him today. Make that faith yours And you'll begin the greatest adventure that anyone can ever have, which is following God. And there might be another listener who has not grown up in a faith tradition, Mm. but instead has had pressure to stay away from that and fears dishonoring family or bringing on the wrath of family. And so they're they're at a decision point where they have to decide family or faith. What do you say to them? Yeah. Well, Jesus uh, teaches on this very clearly, and he uses hyperbole, which is exaggeration for effect, but it certainly has an impact. Uh, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father, his mother, he cannot be my disciple. And of course, what Jesus means there, because obviously elsewhere the Bible teaches us to love and honor our parents, but what he means is that there is a greater call. And if you're in that situation, it might seem as if you're being asked to do something that would be disrespectful to your parents because they want you to follow their religion rather than a relationship with God through Christ. Hmm. And so you need to nonetheless follow God and put him first. Thank you, Josh. Challenging situations, but never more challenging than can be handled by our powerful and omnipotent God. 
Our hope is that continued exposure to God's Word and the promises there will be an encouragement regardless of the challenges you face. We have resources designed to encourage you. Those are on our website, GodCenteredLife.org. We'd love for you to take advantage of that. We also have a brand new offer from Alistair McGrath, an intriguing book, If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis. More information on our website. Next time we get together, we're exploring Generation Flaky. It's a bit like if a child falls off its bike in a park, the dad would run over and pick the child up, but then he'd say, OK, you've got to get back on your bike. He's leaving these nations here to test them, to challenge them, to get them to grow up and stop being Generation Flaky. We're going to continue our study in the book of Judges when we get together next time. Another reminder, GodCenteredLife.org, where we're putting together things to help you grow in pursuit of a God-centered life. And this is your invitation to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody.